Good morning, Steve Dale's Pet World on WGN. Happy Memorial Day weekend, but Memorial Day is more than about picnics and avoiding ants at those picnics. It's about all of those who have served for all of us. So for those of you who have served, thank you so much. But many who have served actually have four legs. Uh, In addition, those who have four legs help those who have served. And we'll talk about that. But first, Chris Willingham is the president of War Dogs Association. Hey, Chris, happy Memorial Day. Thank you very much. I appreciate you having me. And uh, thanks for having this opportunity to talk about U.S. War Dogs. Well, U.S. War Dogs is a great organization. What is the organization? U.S. War Dogs was established in 2000 by five Vietnam dog handlers and While they didn't serve together, they had the common bond of of holding a leash and uh, serving as a dog handler over in Vietnam. And uh, they met each other at a reunion in the late 90s, and they wanted to establish an association to honor the military working dogs, past, present, and future. And so it started in 2000 uh, with the goal of raising money for a uh, monument. Um, to honor war dogs, and then the next year, obviously, 9-11 happened, and my generation of dog handlers started going to Iraq and Afghanistan, so they started supporting them with care packages. And basically, over uh, they got the money, they dedicated the statue in 2006, but since then, U.S. War Dogs has uh, really grown into a life cycle of practical support. So when you're active duty, we send care packages overseas to canine teams. Uh, when the dog retires... We have a, um, a military working dog service award to honor the dog's service. And then the biggest thing is in retirement. So when dogs retire, they don't get any kind of VA care like a veteran would. They don't get any financial compensation. Like the, It's all up to the handler who adopts the dog. So thanks to the Robbie Law in 2000, dogs were, uh, dog handlers were allowed to adopt their dogs out, but all the financial burden falls on them. Like they got to take care of everything uh, as far as vet bills, and you're talking about a dog who's 10 years old now and has been through been through quite a bit, mm-hmm. and that's where U.S. War Dogs comes through. So we we have an RX program where we provide uh, medications for free uh, during the dog's uh, retirement, um, and right now we're covering about 1,200 dogs in retirement, and uh, we also have a specialized uh, care program. So if a dog needs emergency surgery, you know that that could be five six thousand dollars. Sure. Um, at the drop of a hat, and so we help cover that to alleviate the financial burden on the veteran uh, just so they can just focus on giving that dog the, the deserving they retired because those dogs have served too, and they deserve a, a retirement, and they deserve to have care provided for them, and so uh, there's no public funding allowed for it, so or, or right now allocated for it, so that's where we come in and, and help out. Yeah, which is wonderful, uh, and, and there's a lot there I want to back up and talk about. Chris, first, for you, thank you for your service. And explain what you did in the service. I served in the Marine Corps for 20 years, and 17 of my years I was uh, in the military working dog program, and that included a couple deployments as a handler over uh, in Iraq, um, taking 30 dog teams to Afghanistan, all the way up to program manager for Marine Corps Special Operations Command. So kind of worked through all the different levels and worked with some incredible people throughout the years, and just uh, my true passion is is the canine community, and I'll just have a chance to give back through U.S. War Dogs. Uh, absolutely love it. Now, I don't think that the public, I, I think people know that there are military working dogs. I don't think people know the extent of the number of incalculable lives that have been saved from Vietnam on forward, actually even going back before Vietnam, right? 
on forward to the number of lives saved by these dogs. Can you talk about that a bit? Absolutely, yeah. So the the canine program was started uh, actually in World War II when with Dogs for Defense, when people could donate their dogs to see if they were they could pass a test and selection, and uh, very successful from World War II, Korea. Uh, in Korea, they had the twenty six Scott Dog Platoon, to, and it got to the point where the units didn't want to go outside the wire unless they had one of those dogs walking point. They were so successful. And the same thing in Vietnam. I think in Vietnam, you really started seeing a growth in the just the overall training and how they were able to. Uh, prepare these dogs for combat, and there was a common saying for uh, from they came out of Vietnam. If it wasn't for the dogs, there there could have been another ten thousand names on the Vietnam Memorial Wall here in Washington D.C. Um, and then Iraq and Afghanistan. I mean, the, the number one threat to coalition forces in Iraq and Afghanistan was improvised explosive devices. You know, buried uh, buried explosives, buried IEDs, and they needed a way to counter that threat. And they had this organization, the Joint IED Defeat Organization. And over six years and $19 billion, they could not defeat the detection capabilities of a well-trained military working dog. That's how good these dogs were in combat. Uh, They were so proven in the rigors of combat and saving lives. And Luca, the dog I had, is the only reason I made it home to my family. Like, multiple times locating IEDs, and not just mine, but the... The guys who are around me, like it's, uh, you know, just speaking from personal experience, like these dogs do incredible work for us. And, and uh, the only reason I got to meet my kids and got the only reason I got to come home to my family was because of the detection capabilities of my military working dog. Yeah, and I can hear your voice kind of cracking a bit when you talk about that, understandably. And these dogs do so much. So you mentioned detection work and they do guard work, but they do more than that, correct? Yeah, so we have uh, we have dogs that have apprehension capabilities as well uh, as well as tracking capabilities. So, like for example, for a tracking dog, um, let's say if you go up and if I locate an IED, the tracking dog could do a three sixty around it and help give you a direction of travel where the individuals who set that up. It's very sense specific for who set that particular ID up. Or if you get into a a firefight with a small contingent and they break contact and you go find the spent casings that dog can pick up the scent trail of where those individuals went and then you use military tactics to close time and distance um so just an overall force multiplier um in any kind of combat situation if you got boots on the ground like canine has a very important role you know i remember interviewing this was years ago a general a three or four star general an important dude who was touting the military's new equipment that cost, I don't know, several million dollars for each piece that could detect landmines. And he explained what it was all about. And then I said this. I said, so this replaces a dog's nose? And he stopped and he said, nothing we can ever manufacture will ever replace not only a dog's nose, but a dog's willingness and loyalty. Do you agree 100%. with that? Yeah, yeah. Yes, sir, 100%. I mean, it's uh, when you start to, when you pair a dog and a handler together and they start going through training um, and there's a certain synergy that's formed between the dog and the handler. And when that clicks, and every dog handler knows what I'm talking about, like when that moment clicks and you start to really understand each other and, and the dog can almost read off of you before you have to ask him to do something and you know what the dog needs, like 
there's something so powerful about that tandem going overseas to uh, to perform their duties. And um, I thought I knew my dog well. I thought I was, uh, you know, I was I was ready. I was ready to go down range with my dog. You learn so much more when you are down range and you're living with your dog seven days a week and. It just every day in and out, you're learning all these little nuances, and you just get stronger and better as a team. And um, and I think as an important secondary mission is, it's nice when we, we if you'd had a rough day, if you've if um, things didn't go quite, quite as planned, and you got a dog over there with you, just that mental stress relief, just to have a piece of home in a bad situation, um, in between missions, like kind of an unofficial mission, was just lifting the morale of the guys we're around. Like so they. There's so many things these dogs do for us. And then when it was game time, put the harness back on. All right, it's all business now. Let's go out and do some work. And it was just to have be able to flip that switch and just to accomplish so many different tasks uh, is just the dog team was absolutely incredible. We could go anywhere teams would go, doing helo inserts, like however you want to get there, we can get there. Like it was, it was absolutely incredible to have that uh, fully mission-capable asset attached to my side. Certainly, man and woman's best friend – Saving countless lives, you'd agree that the number is incalculable, you know, I, I'm sure. Yes, sir. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yes, yeah. I mean, more than we could ever calculate, yet not always treated so great. I'll talk about that when we come back on WGN. Chris Willingham happens to be the president of War, the War Dogs Association, a non-for-profit that, as you describe, and we'll talk more about it again, uh, supports military working dogs, uh, also their retirement, most importantly, uh, when they come back. But back in Vietnam, the dogs were greatly, they had the same bond, but they were left there as a piece of equipment, and uh, many died, did they not? Some starving to death, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, so they had about uh, a little over 4,000 dogs that served in Vietnam, and unfortunately, only about 200 made it home, um, and it was a decision based off of they were worried about disease control and they were worried about folks being able to make the transition back to the civilian life. Like all could have been avoidable, but that was the, that was the mindset back then. And uh, thanks to organizations like U.S. War Dogs, like I said, they were founded by we were founded by five Vietnam dog handlers with that goal just to honor the dog service and bring more awareness and recognition about what these dogs do for us and. Thankfully, over the years, uh, we have gone, come a long way in how we treat and respect our military working dogs. And I, I became a dog handler in 2000, and I can tell you just from that point on, like it's just been nothing but you know great love and support from the canine community and, and the supporters on the outside. Some of my biggest mentors uh, are Vietnam dog handlers. But it is very, is it a very sensitive subject? Like if you if you talk to them about it, they can write off their dog's name and tattoo number and sure. tell you very specific stories. But it's it's a very heartbreaking moment when you, when you talk to a Vietnam dog handler and realizing that, like, when I came home from Iraq, I brought my dog home with me, uh, they would have to leave their dogs behind. And Ron Aiello was a longtime president of U.S. War Dogs. Yes. So, you know, he does a lot of his stuff in honor of Stormy, who was his dog that he had, the German Shepherd he had over in Vietnam. And a couple weeks before he came back over, they said, okay, the dog's got to start getting used to the next handler. Uh, mm. So it wasn't even leaving it to... You know, at the end of the war, it was just leaving it for another handler to start training with a dog. So it was just the way they ran the program back then. Um, I'm glad we've made a lot of change we've had and, and really developed the way we take care of our dogs uh, in the military. Do more changes need to occur? 
Absolutely. Uh, these dogs absolutely deserve a, to have their, their retirement paid for. I mean, there's no reason you take a dog. We go train them. We select them. We use them in, in combat. We use them for law enforcement purposes. And when that dog retires, there, there's no reason the, the handler who adopts the dog should have to fit the bill for that. Like, it, it, in comparatively speaking to the budget, like, it wouldn't be that much. Like, if we could just get the budget set aside just to take care of these dogs, get them properly registered, hey, this is a military working dog, retired, they shouldn't have to pay for their food. They shouldn't have to pay for their medical care because everything they've done during their, you know, eight, nine years of service, uh, they, they've, they deserve that. Like, their last couple years, like, they absolutely have deserved that. Well, and, you know, a lot of these dogs come back, even if they're somewhat younger, they come back with the same post-traumatic stress disorder syndrome. We know that now, uh, that uh, so many people come back with. Uh, and to not be able to provide treatment, never mind clear medical issues, I mean, such as arthritis or whatever, uh, or disease such as cancer, uh, and veterans do not come back making a whole lot of money very often uh, and have their own issues. So it's a crime, I think. And even by the government's own, if you take their perspective that, okay, when it comes down to it, these dogs are still equipment, well, the equipment ought to be taken care of. So no matter how you look at it, I don't think dogs are equipment, but no matter how you look at it, I think it's clear that the government needs to step up. I would 100% agree. I mean, they've just go, if you could get, uh, if we could talk to the right people, you could just hear a few dog handler stories about what their dogs have done for them in combat. And then that same dog handler, again, nobody joins the military to get rich. Like I, I retired and I was paycheck to paycheck forever uh, as in the military. Um, and my dog lost a leg in Afghanistan mm. and I gladly covered the cost because that dog meant the world to me. But I mean, it puts you in a tough financial spot uh, to having to do that. So it's, but you're going to do it because you love the dog, and now I've got to, you've got to choose between you know, so many different things, and it's just another stressor in a, a veteran's life. Like These dogs need to be taken care of by the government that procured them and trained them and used them. Uh, it's the only, only way to go, in my opinion. Yeah, but people can also help by, if they're so inclined, going to the website to learn more about you, U.S. War Dog Association. What is the website? Uh, USWarDogs.org. And uswardogs.org, and that's where we got, like I said, our, our, you learn more about what our dogs do for us and the different programs we have, um, and also just also we're a nonprofit, so we run by the, off the generous donations of, of people, and we help provide these uh, the care for the military working dogs that the government doesn't. All right, so talk about, uh, you did earlier, but repeat some of the services. We only have like two minutes here. So repeat uh, some of the services those dogs uh, offer. Or you offer so just, uh, to the, I'm sorry, that yes, you offer. Yes, sir. Um, so when the dog's active duty, we send care packages to uh, dog teams around the world. We sent 170 out uh, last year. We're getting ready to do another package run this summer. And then um, when the dog retires, we have a military working dog service medal to all other service. And the biggest part is in retirement. We cover all prescription medications for our retired military working dogs as well as emergency surgeries. Uh, so that veteran doesn't have to fit the bill. We can alleviate some of that financial burden. So they just focus on giving the dog a great retirement. Yeah. I thank you for the work you do. I thank you and your colleagues, by the way, for their service. Give me, before we go, one quick story about uh, how these dogs have saved lives. I know you have hundreds of stories. Just one. So on my... uh 
I was on a large clearing operation south of Baghdad, and uh, we were going up searching. Sometimes the, the mission itself is to search a route, and we had to search a route along the Tigris River. And my dog goes up to, uh, we went through three choke points, which are very vulnerable for IEDs. And on the third one, uh, my dog indicated that there was an explosive device there. It ended up being about 30 pounds of homemade explosives buried uh, that we were about to walk through as a patrol. And thanks to her detection capabilities, we were able to uh, render the IED safe. So, and that was just, that was, that was special to me because that was our first one. We put a lot of, so much training and work came to that moment of validation. But when she located the IED on our patrol in front of us, uh, Absolutely incredible uh, moment of validation for just the overall capabilities of our military working dogs. And uh, she got an extra steak that night for, <laughs> for a treat. <laughs> Without the dog with you, what would have happened? Uh, you're, you're talking about you got the potential loss of life and casualties, like mass casualties. It was a large-scale IED. Um, and probably five or six of us would have been either killed or, or, uh, or severely wounded. Like, it was... It was a large-scale ID, and that was just one of many in that area. I mean, the, the area we are going into, there wasn't, there hadn't been any military sustained forces in there in over nine months, um, and it was just a, it was a, called the Triangle of Death. It was just a god-awful area, um, mm. and our dogs were very successful in there, bringing a lot of people home. Chris, give me the website one more time. Our website is www.uswardogs.org. Thank you so much. Thank you, and again. Please thank everyone uh, that's involved with the organization for the amazing work that you all do. Thank you. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. So here's a behind-the-scenes story for you. On my Sunday afternoon show from 1 o'clock till 3 o'clock, I don't know, it was four months ago, three months ago, somewhere in there, I had Loretta Swit, Hot Lips Houlihan of MASH, on the programming. Greatly at that point, it was the something-something anniversary of MASH, and that's primarily why she was there. But I talked to her off the air in in a conversation that lasted longer, I think, than our 30-minute conversation on the air when she heard about what I do as far as being an animal behavior consultant, speaking at veterinary conferences, and hosting this pet radio show for 26 or so years on WGN Radio. And she said all the... I mean, she I couldn't stop her. She was going on and on, and clearly... I mean, she calls herself an animal activist, and she's been calling herself that now for a very long time. Her most recent book is called The Watercolor Artistry and Animal Activism of Loretta Swit. She'll be here next week. The name of the organization is called Canines for Warriors. And wow, this is an incredible and really important organization. Carl Cricko is the CEO. We've talked about this organization before on the program Carl, happy Memorial Day, and welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Well, I don't know how many soldiers, I know it's a record number, and it seems to increase percentage-wise all the time, that return from overseas with post-traumatic stress disorder syndrome. If you go back decades and decades, it was thought to be kind of a made-up thing. Nobody thinks that anymore, to my knowledge. Uh, the VA even has lots of information on their website about post-traumatic stress disorder syndrome. And here and there, they talk about how service dogs might help. But they don't admit it very much because they don't want to pay for those dogs, I don't think. We will get to that. But first, I want to know what Canine for Warriors does. 
Absolutely. So we're the nation's largest provider of service dogs for military veterans. What fuels us is really the epidemic that is veteran suicide. Roughly 20 veterans a day are, are taking their own lives. And that's what we're up against. That's why we exist. And what we do is we provide highly trained service dogs to veterans suffering from PTSD, traumatic brain injury, and or military sexual trauma. And we pair them with service dogs um, that have a tremendous impact on their well-being. We have data from a third-party organization uh, that shows that these veterans that go through our program reduce their medication dependency, 92% reduce their medication dependency, and 82% have a reduction in suicidal ideation. So it really has a tremendous impact on the well-being of our veteran uh group who that are, that are struggling um, and also um, allows them to, you know, get back into life, get back to a life worth living, which they all deserve. And one important note is that the majority of the dogs that come through our program are rescues from high kill rescue shelters. So not only are we working to keep veterans alive and well, but we're also uh, basically keeping dogs alive. We're um, getting dogs uh, away from euthanasia, right? We're keeping these dogs alive and and bringing them back into the world through the uh, use of a service dog. Yeah, I mean, you're saving dog lives and you're saving human lives. I would guess that the research you're talking about uh, is Dr. Maggie O'Hare. Is that right? You know, Maggie O'Hare did a a number of studies for us. The research that I was recently, uh, that I just mentioned, was from Flagler University here in in, uh, St. Augustine, Florida, near Mm. our campus. And it really mirrors other research. So, Dr. O'Hare, the research you just mentioned, well, the data and other research, well, the data is somewhat similar and somewhat different. They're all saying the same thing. And I want to dive a little deeper into that. So, we have, you said, 20 veterans a day that commit suicide. 20 a day. Do the math on that. That's without a service dog. If they have a service dog my understanding is the numbers then change dramatically to about what it is for the general population. Is that true? Yeah, that's correct. Our program has uh, over 870 veterans uh, graduates as of this point, and we've lost one um, since we started. So uh, the numbers speak for themselves. It, it, it's a dramatic increase in their well-being. Their suicidal ideation uh, decreases dramatically. And, you know, more than anything, they, they start engage in, engaging in the world again. You know, isolation is a real issue for these ladies and gentlemen who come back from war. They just don't want to leave the house. They're scared of everything. And what these dogs allow them to do, in addition to many other things, is simply get out of the house, start to engage with the world again. Now, I want to talk about that a little bit, too, because not only, obviously, is the welfare of those servicemen and women who, who really went to, they served us. They are all, in my view, heroes for serving, and that is the right word, I think, for all of us uh, in the military, no matter what they happen to do in the military. So providing them with welfare that they deserve is the right thing to do, for starters. But even if you say, I don't care about them, even if you say, I don't care about those dogs, we are talking about saving everyone in America— a whole lot of money. And if there were more dogs available, even more money. And what I'm talking about is, and you mentioned this briefly earlier, the need for pharmaceuticals isn't as great. So the prescription they require may be a a lower prescription or no prescription of certain drugs. 
in many cases. That saves all of us money because we're paying for all those drugs. Aside from it, as I said, and we'll say again, being absolutely the right thing to do. But it goes further than that, because if they're working, and if they're a part of society, and now they're actually supporting society, if you will, uh, rather than taking away, for lack of a better way of putting it, from society, then that's better for all of America, I, I think. And I don't know that people put all that together, Carl. Yeah, I mean, that, that is a, a way to look at it. You know, uh, at the end of the day, these individuals that come through our program, I mean, I'm no exaggeration, they're taking 30 pills a day, three zero or more. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's staggering. And I think the VA is definitely over-reliant on pharmaceuticals to get our veterans to a place where they're not a, a danger to themselves. But what we've found is that service dogs um, allow them to reduce that medication and also live a fuller life. You know, they're not just numb on the couch. They're actually engaging and reducing their medications. And, you know, it'll take time before the VA really starts to subsidize these dogs as an alternative. I think we'll get there. Um, but, it, but, you know, it's like turning a gigantic ship. It takes time. And the VA is slowly acknowledging the impact that these dogs have on the well-being of their veterans. All too slowly. You know, I, I think that, I don't know, I've talked to the VA about this. It's been several years. I I don't know how they can't acknowledge. At one point in time, they said there's not enough research, there's not enough data. Now there is research and data from, we mentioned a couple of studies, but there are others. So that, and common sense, and anecdote from all those veterans that have had a service dog now over the years. That All that combined should make a difference. I believe that it does. I also believe that it comes down to money. And they, I, I, th- yeah. Go ahead. No, no, I think you're right. I think it is money, you know. And if you did the math, I think ultimately you are saving a, a ton of money in the long run. To get a dog to where it needs to be to become a service dog costs about $25,000, right? Then the veteran has that dog. That's a tool for life. And then they reduce their dependency on medication and talk therapy to some degree. So you have those costs go down over time, and the dog, they have the dog for the lifetime of the dog. And what we do, say a dog passes, a service dog passes, we bring that veteran right back and give them a new dog, pair them up again, get them through the program. So it ultimately, is it, it is a, a lifelong resource that we're offering um, that would definitely benefit the veteran community as a whole, and the VA ultimately, from a cost perspective. And you forgot one thing. I mean, the employment rate is greater. And you mentioned already the suicide rate is lower. So if someone attempts suicide and doesn't succeed, there's all sorts of medical costs involved in that, too. I mean, it's what the difference is, is absolutely significant. I wish I had the VA in the studio so I could take them and shake them up. But it isn't about them, I think, not understanding the truth. I don't know how they couldn't at this point. It's they don't want to put in the dollars to do it up front, even though common sense tells you and what you describe is it would benefit America financially on the other end. But most importantly, I can't think of a group that deserves to be appreciated, deserves to have money spent on them in the right way, no matter what happens on the other side of that investment than veterans. Uh, We'll be back with Carl Cricco of Canines for Warriors when we come back on WGN. Carl Cricco is the CEO of a nonprofit called Canines for Warriors. Uh, This organization provides service dogs for veterans 
up oftentimes with post-traumatic stress disorder syndrome and other similarly related problems. A big reason for suicide, a big reason for people not working who happen to be veterans or landing in jail and all those sorts of things. A couple of years ago, I remember Meatball. Meatball was a pug, maybe a pug mix, who came into the studio with Meatball's person, a former veteran. He served in Afghanistan, as I recall. And he told me on the air, he said, you know, this is amazing. I said, what? He said that I'm here. I would never have gone downtown anywhere, let alone, because WGN Radio is downtown in Chicago, let alone into a radio studio with a radio host and other people, because there were other guests, without this dog. Is that your experience, too? Yeah, 100%. I mean, like I said earlier, these ladies and gentlemen, isolation is a huge, huge issue for folks suffering from PTSD. And we've seen folks who come here day one, and isolate, don't want to engage with their fellow veterans that are in the class. And by the end of our three-week program, they're asking us, you know, can I work at Canines for Warriors? Not only that, but a lot of these people come on, go, go on to be ambassadors for us. They're so thankful for what this dog has done to their lives and their well-being that they want to tell the world about it. So imagine somebody who was scared to leave the house due to anxiety because of PTSD, who's then on a live TV broadcast, you know, a year later spreading the word about canines for warriors, you know, confidently. Mm-hmm. That's a dramatic transformation, and that dog is what got them from point A to point B. Yeah, that's what he said, and that's what I've heard from others. I want to talk about the dog end of it. Uh, so you mentioned that you get dogs that are targeted to be euthanized very often. Those are the dogs. How do you identify those dogs? What shelters do you work with? And, and then what happens from there? Yeah, sure. So we um, scour the uh, shelter community across the country, you know, mainly in the southeast for our Florida campus and Texas for our Texas campus. There's plenty of great dogs out there. We just have to find them. So there are obviously size and weight requirements so they can perform certain tasks for our veterans. But more than anything, we're looking for temperament and intelligence. So when we go to these shelters, we temperament test them, make sure they don't resource guard, which means, you know, potentially bite someone if they put their hand near the food bowl. And if they check all those boxes and they have, you know, a decent temperament and are potentially capable of learning service commands, we bring them into our program. Um, they train on campus, either at our campus in Texas or Florida, for on average six months. You know, sometimes it's eight, sometimes it's five. It depends on the dog and how quickly they learn, just like a human. Once that dog graduates to become a service dog, they're paired with a veteran here on our campus in Florida or Texas. The veteran stays on our campus for three weeks, understands how to utilize that dog fully. That dog is a fully trained service dog. They're not training that dog. We're really training the veteran to use that service dog over the three-week program. At the end of our three-week program, that veteran graduates with that dog, walks off with their battle buddy for life at no cost to them whatsoever, And once they leave, we also offer wraparound services. Say there's a slightly additional training needed when they leave, we make sure that's provided. Say they have an issue with their HOA, you know, giving them a hard time because of their dog, we handle all that for them. So we, it's a lifelong relationship with Canines for Warriors to ensure that that dog brings that veteran back into life on a positive note. And any additional stressors that maybe having a service dog brings to that warrior's life, we mitigate that immediately. So we really spend our life the lifetime of that veteran, ensuring that they can uh, have the best shot possible. 
And again, these are dogs, you said, that are often targeted to be euthanized. I mean, so you're saving dog lives. You're literally, as we talked about earlier, because of the suicide rate, being so high without a dog, but yet with a dog still being too high, because America's suicide rate is way too high, but at least in line with the general population. And in fact, what you described as well, even lower than that, because you saw one out of, what, nearly a thousand people now that you've paired uh, with a dog. So how do you do that? How is that, how is that dating service work? Uh, do, they, do they go online and, like, matchmakers.com or yeah, something? Well, the application process for our veterans is pretty, is pretty intensive. You know, we ask a lot of questions. And the point of that is to ensure that they're a good candidate for our program. You know, there's some physical demands uh, and being part of this program, obviously. And also mentally, you know, we get a sense of what their lifestyle is like. What do they do on a day-to-day basis? And based on that, is that data, that information on their lifestyle and, and uh, who they are, we find the dog that best fits them. And sometimes we, find, we, we pair them with a the dog that is kind of the antithesis of them. Say this person's a couch potato who isolates and doesn't want to leave the house. We give them a dog that's pretty active. That dog gets them out of the house. That mm-hmm. dog gets them to engage more. So it's really looking at what that veteran needs in order to kind of get back to a life of dignity and independence, and then finding the dog that really, you know, plugs those holes and gets that person where they need to go. And that takes a lot of understanding of the veteran's needs, obviously, uh, through our surveying and interviewing and talking through uh, with them over the months before they come. And then also our dog trainers um, really looking at the dogs we have available and finding those traits and understanding what the best fit is for that veteran and that dog. I remember asking, I'll name drop here just to make a point, Dr. Jane Goodall, uh, who I've interviewed a couple of times, but once I asked her what the most important thing happened to be in her life, the most important influence, and she said, I don't remember the name, but it was the name of her childhood dog. And then she said, dogs are so very special. Oh, yeah. Are you even amazed yourself at what dogs can do? Yeah, I am every day. Now, we're tapping into, you know, 100,000 years of evolution plus, right? This is a bond that's been, you know, man's man's best friend, that we're we're tapping into this core innate uh, bond between canine and man, and it's, it's profound. I mean, for example, we have veterans, you know, multiple times who their dog wakes them up from when they're having a, a night tear, night sure. sweats. I mean, sure. jumps on top of them. We have dogs that will sense a panic attack before it even happens. You know, they, they have a, they're in tune with these, these veterans like on a level that you can't imagine. And that veteran will also be feeling fine in the moment. And then be wondering, why is this dog jumping on me? Why is it loving on me right now? And then all of a sudden they feel this panic attack coming on. It's like, yeah. holy moly, this dog actually knew what was coming before it happened. So the amount of emotional intelligence um, is profound. Um, they really do. They are a, a gift from God. And, you know, we're really just harnessing that and maximizing it to get our veterans what they need in order to get through the day and, and thrive. Well, I'm happy to raise money for you if we can. What's the website? The website is caninesforwarriors.org. And that's the letter K, by the way, right? So it's yep, the, le- the letter K, number nine, S. Forwarriors.org. Very good. Carl Cricko, keep up the amazing work that you and your entire staff and all the volunteers do, and happy Memorial Day to you. Appreciate it very much. Thanks for the time. I think this is the most exciting news for dogs since someone said liver. This is, I mean, really, this is great news. So let me tell you about the K9 
cat version about what I'm about to talk about. It's a monoclonal antibody. That's the kind of medication class this is. Uh, You might know that term because there's a monoclonal antibody treatment for COVID-19. Well, that is for people, and it is species-specific. So there's a product called Silencia. It's for arthritis in cats, which is vastly underdiagnosed, and specifically for cats. It came out, what, last year? It's a monthly injectable, so the cat has to go to the veterinarian every month. But I'll tell you, that it sounds like, oh, that's hard to do. But these cats actually sometimes say, oh, I'm going to feel better. So they learn, just like they learn to avoid the carrier because they don't like what happens at the vet, now they're liking what happens at the vet. That's actually begun to happen. All right, here's the reason why I bring it up, though. Labrella. That's the name of this product that's now available for dogs, or it will be fairly soon, at least before the end of the year. I'm personally looking forward to this. I have a 15-year-old dog. It's for dogs with arthritis. So we know that most dogs in America are older dogs, not necessarily geriatric, but older. And in addition to that, about half of all dogs are overweight or obese. So you put those two data points together, there are a whole lot of dogs. The estimate is about 40% that have arthritis. And while there are other things that can help, certainly, and I'm not, I mean, those things are great. Those either pharmaceutical products or uh, exercises like uh, physical therapy, that's great, but the dog has to not be in pain in order to effectively do physical therapy I'll tell you, this is a game changer. I am so excited about it. Ask your veterinarian about Labrella. Talk to you next week, bright and early on WGN.